Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Robert Colville, editor of CapEx, and today I'll be talking to Frank Field. Frank is the man charged by Tony Blair with thinking the unthinkable on welfare, who was then promptly sacked for thinking it. He was one of the first mainstream politicians to warn about the dangers of mass immigration and one of the few on the Labour benches to campaign for Brexit. In his role as chairman of the Work and Pensions Select Committee, he also played a leading role in hounding Sir Philip Green over BHS. We'll be talking about the collapse of the Labour Party, the power of faith in politics and how Frank accidentally abolished modern slavery. I mean, I'd grown up in a working class Tory household and I'd grown out of it. And this was, you know, an issue where that became the parting of the way. So it wasn't, I didn't have any Pauline conversions. I didn't know what sort of fall about with blinding um, lights being shone at me and all the rest of it. I mean, it was a natural move to make. But you were always interested in politics. You were always sort of drawn to it. Yes. I mean, I I was then much more optimistic about change than I am now. (laughs) When I look back to then, I thought great thing about being in politics, the change you could actually help bring about. Um, I'm more cautious now, but, but always optimistic. So the great thing is the, the change you can prevent from happening, possibly. Sometimes that, but uh, I'm half full glass rather than half empty. So, so did you then get, sort of go straight over to, to Labour? Or was there a yes, I did, Now I joined um, uh, shortly afterwards. Is, yes, I was a right? um, working class Tory family, that's why I understand the Labour vote so well. Or a large part of it, um, and it, you, one can make it sound grand or grander than it is. But I helped organise a boycott of South African goods in Brentford and Chiswick, where I was secretary of the Young Tories with a, a, a school friend who was secretary of the Young Labour. And what it really amounted to, we printed some leaflets to hand out. But I was squeezed out the Tory party. I'm quite pleased to be squeezed out. And it was just before. Macmillan's Winds of Change speech, that great speech saying what's sweeping through Africa. Um, and before that, the young Tories were holding the old line on race. And then many of them, once Macmillan had made that move and given that speech, changed their views. But I'd left by then. But it did show the importance of leadership that that speech of Macmillan's on the Winds of Change changed a generation of young Tories' views about race. But I mean, but obviously, I mean, apartheid was and, and race in Africa was still sort of was was still one of the dividing lines in politics for for years after that. It was, but he'd actually managed to stake out for younger radical members who previously had loyally kept the the Tory line that they could break 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 loose really. But, um, 
But one of the sort of interesting things about you is that you 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 aren't, you aren't a politician who takes the party line. I mean, I know there have been various attempts over the years by the Tories to to bring you back into the fold. No, I didn't last night on our first night committee stage of um, the Brexit bill. I won't today, and nor am I tomorrow on our last day on the Brexit bill. So I'd be voting against the party line in all of them. You sort of came to prominence for most people, I, I guess, in in ninety seven under Blair, when you're the guy who's famously appointed to to think the unthinkable. There was occasion before when I was at ch- I I'd, um, joined Child Poverty Action Group, um, and it had, had, had made some really good advances, but it was fairly um, moribund's the wrong word, isn't it? But it. it there was a great debate whether they should just roll up and become part of Shelter and some of the executives thought no and appointed me and that led to me writing a memorandum of what had happened to the poor under Labour which I headed knowing that that would get the story off the ground the poor come, become poor under Labour it was a long time after that before public meetings people wouldn't shout Judas at me because party loyalty is much stronger then than it is now and then, of course, there was the Blair era as well, of giving me a title, <laughs> but not meaning any of it. I mean, but, I, mean, is, I mean, that sort of feels like, in a way, the sort of the golden thread of your of your career. This sort of this con- this sort of concern for the poor, both in Britain and overseas, but a, a sort of a recognition that the market is often the way to to do that. There is that, and also the other cases that I'm viewed as um, an outsider. But I long to be an insider. <laughs> but it just so happens that the events one's de- dealing with uh, pushes me to the outside to say what I think should be said and to organise in a way that I think one should organise and often try to defeat the government, whether it's a Tory government or a Labour government. Where did those, those ideas come from? You're a very religious man. You're on the Synod of the Church of England, I think. No, I got deselected there. Oh, what happened? <laughs> Um, in that a lot, quite some time ago there was an issue about women priests and it seemed to me just bizarre not to have women priests in that there was a lack of male priests and a large number of women who wanted to be priests um, and Christians believe that God speaks in different ways to people and in the Old Testament he was set like to bushes to draw attention, it just seemed that this was another way of the Spirit speaking to the Church. What are you going on about? Um, and the Catholic group on the Synod, which I was part of, I'd been nominated as a, a co-opted member by Runcy, then turned on me, decided they were going to block any further extension. So I, I have a habit of getting deselected. But it was over women priests. But you also have a, have a habit then of, of being sort of weirdly ahead of your party. So you, you know you were ahead of the Tories way back when you were on on, on apartheid. You were ahead of Labour on welfare, and then you were ahead of pretty much everyone on immigration. It, 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 yes, it's, it's, there's no prizes for that because people don't want to <laughs> afterwards to. I mean, it's quite amazing now, isn't it? The numbers of people who say they've changed their views in the Labour Party on immigration because of the vote in their constituencies on Brexit. But have they changed, really changed, is my, is my question. Um, I mean, it's great if they have. 
Um, but yes, yes. You, you, there's quite a lot of meetings at which you hear a Labour MC, PC. Of course, we get the message. Of course, we're listening on immigration. And the thing to do is have lots of conversations which help people understand that it's not a problem. It, yes, I mean, there's. I'm sure some of them have got the message, and many more will when they face the electorate and a, UP, a UKIP candidate that actually really is asking them to are they, where do they stand on, the, on these these matters. I mean, do you think that if you, so you, you and Nicholas Soames, which is one of the oddest couples in <laughs> recent political history, set up the uh, the, the group on balanced balance, balance yes, migration. Balance migration. We now more look alike, don't we? Given his wonderful, <laughs> successful weight losing efforts. <laughs> no, but but again, it's you know that if I thought if we could have Nicholas um, working on this issue, and he obviously thought if he could have me working on it as well then for both sides, both parties, it's unexpected, isn't it? And that was, that was sort of back in the days when the Blair government had very successfully rendered talking about immigration beyond the political pale. Yes, yeah. And, and the truth is, of course, I wasn't brave enough to raise it as an issue that I thought it was an issue for yonks until it, we were talking about white people coming in. I mean, even then, the, the anger that this is, was racist was one one had to, to face and David Blunkett and, and Jack Straw both made statements went on the media to say that you know that we assure you that Frank isn't racist and I remember one conversation with David uh, who kindly said look I can assure you Frank isn't racist and I said David how do you know I'm not racist how do you know in my heart what I really think even if I know myself on that isn't it the argument we have to face not the category that somebody might talk about this could be a racist. But it was immensely kind of both of them to give me cover, to assure people that you know, there was an argument here that had to be faced. But it still hasn't been faced in the Labour ranks, although people say that it is being. And as, and the, as you say, that, that I mean, people have got a line now to say but whether anything follows from that, we'll see. But do you think if people had listened to you and, and Nicholas, Nicholas Holmes earlier on, that you know, the Brexit wouldn't have happened, or 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 is the sort of is the die cast as soon as you let in the the Eastern Europe the the, the new entries from Eastern Europe? Well, certainly, when they were allowed in without any transition program, we were just one knew that we were in mega trouble. But then the other trouble was, of course, that we couldn't get Alan Johnson to stand, either against um, Gordon Brown, and we couldn't get Alan Johnson to stand against Ed Miliband. <laughs> On any occasion, if we could get it, have got Alan in eight weeks before the election, those, both those elections, well, the first election um, with, with 210, we would have won it. And Alan accepts that now, but it hasn't changed his view about standing as leader. Because he, like you, is someone who speaks to the labour working classes. Oh, he's just a wonderful person, isn't he? And got a, such an extraordinary story that people think this is a real person. And people make a distinction between real people and politicians. And Alan is viewed as a real person, not a politician. I think he all the time is Alan's talking to the country, even if it's a party audience, which I think is important. I mean, there are lessons, of course, for the party what he's saying but it's he's forever thinking about how you deliver success and that's what we should be here for but you were one of the um, 
fools, idiots, whatever they've been called, who who nominated Jeremy Corbyn in order to get have the arguments out in the open, and then saw that backfire rather spectacularly. Yeah. No, no, I'm as guilty as anybody. If this, if if that's the point, really, when Labour Party is destroyed, my only defence is, and it's quite a strong one, is that when these proposals and membership proposals put forward by Ed Miliband for three pounds. Nobody on the NEC saw this danger. And amongst the hard left group, amongst Jeremy, amongst John MacDonald, Diane Abbott, when they were picking their candidate for this for that fight, and, and we now know John has gone on record saying this, that they went round the room and people said, what about you, John? And he said, no, I know I've done my bit. I'm not doing it again. I've had a heart attack. Diana, but now I've done mine and then people then said Jeremy you've not done it's your turn now the idea that either John or Diane would have given way if they thought that this was uh, was winnable so we all shared the error but I, I, I as much as anybody else by nominating thinking we'd get a debate um, to try and keep the Labour Party comprehensive but we need that from the right as well as the left and of course that's not how it's turned out and now Brexit is, is, is pulling the party apart even even further. Well, it needn't do, but it certainly is, yes. I mean, the, the, the Labour voters have spoken, haven't they? Um, and we'll see from the Stoke um, by-election whether they are now on the march or not. Um, I, I don't want to be accused of losing another seat. <laughs> You were accused of losing one before? Oh, I'm endlessly in what I've actually said. We're losing elections, losing seats. God knows what from what I say. But, I mean, the danger is that we're, we're to a huge number of people here um, that the, the Labour vote is now ready to move to a UKIP party that appeals to their national interest. I mean, we had... We had a debate, almost one of our last debates in the Parliamentary Party before um, Ed Miliband led us to defeat. And I was told, you know, this is, you know, put up or shut up. Uh, so I went to this debate um, and a large number of then Labour MPs got up and said, this is you know, the most brilliant, it's a most brilliant speech, brilliant, 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 brilliant. And I just got up at the, towards the end and said... Um, do you actually think that um, we are responsible for this huge influx? Do you actually think this has actually resulted in real pressure on NHS, that you can't get your children into local schools, there's almost no chance of getting a house? Do you, do you not see any link between our policies of opening the door? And they got up and said no. And the PLP, a lot of them, cheered. And... Um, I thought, I, you know, God, what am I doing in this party? I've never been so distraught before. And I sat down there as the um, party filed out this mega committee room and a small group of peers came up and said, Frank, we've never been elected, but we understand what you're talking about. Um, and I had said, in, uh, more gently than probably I remember, there were a group of people barracking me. And I did say something about whether it would be interesting whether you're back after the election. Well, half of them weren't. I mean, UKIP gave their seats to the Tories. And I mean, w w I mean, were you ever tempted to to just say sod it and go? No. And go off and but, but even if I, I'm not being, but even if I was, where would you go? <laughs> I mean, if you were ambitious for office, one would go 
uh, to the Tories. But I'm, I'm not a Tory, so what do I want to go there for? But um, but the centre left, where is there for anybody? I mean, you've got to be very young now, haven't you, and very ambitious to join any of the existing centre left groups to think you might be able to exercise power. Well, I thought I thought this was the the thing about. Um student politics, that everyone te- seemed to join the party which was then in power. And I always thought that the thing you should do would be to join the party which wasn't in power, because, you know, in 20 years' time, it was it was likely to, you know, so all, all of the, when I was at university, all the plausible young people were drawing, joining the Labour Party, and, you know, none of them have got seats now. And, yeah. But uh, you, you sense that... that you know, no, I agree, yeah. But I you don't. sense that, you know, the Labour, if you do that this time, the Labour Party might not be there. No, sure. And that's the problem. Since Freud, it's very difficult to know oneself fully, isn't it? So I'm up, I'm deeply ambitious about achieving goals, um, and I it, it would have been nice to have had a life which allowed one to be more of the person making the decisions than trying to convince secretaries of state this is what they might do and it, all sorts of reasons why they why they should do it. it. Takes quite a lot of time to do it that way. And I mean, how are you finding it now on with the committee? I mean, do you find that's a a nice sort of pulpit? Uh or is, it, or is it more a case of sort of shepherd? You know, are, are you actually able to put your own view forward, or is it about about well, it the is a, No, it's a collective effort on the committee. We decide our the committee as a whole decides its area of work. I rarely come in on questions because I sh- um, give them out to other people and so on. Um, that is in contrast to how some committees are run. <laughs> I gather <laughs> people are hardly allowed to speak. But, but there does seem to have been a, a sort of a resurgence of the of the committee system in the last. Yeah, no, no, indeed, and with our, with BHS, which is a long way to go yet, and doing a joint committee with the biz committee and joint approach with the biz committee, and then how we follow that up with the prime minister. No, no, there's 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 a lot to um, play for. No, I'm. Uh, that it's very interesting where uh, in the British Constitution when the, when the opposition fails it's very interesting where the opposition reappears and under Thatcher it reappeared as the Church of England fighting that uh, it may well be in the committee system this time it will certainly be amongst many of the Tories later on if we continue like this so that there will be a natural counterbalance from somewhere because I mean, at the moment, it feels like the the pressure is on her is from the right, politically speaking, especially over over Brexit. That that's where the, that's the, that's where the rebe- they fear the rebellion can lose them. Yes, I think um, she doesn't have to worry about the right at all. Because where's it, in a sense, where does the Tory right go? I mean, this is the best prime minister they can they have got to get Brexit through. I genuinely believe she wants to deliver Brexit. It's, it's how you do. And either you do it very simply by saying, you know, the, the, what terms you're going to offer us initially, and if it's hopeless, just saying, well, bye-bye, we'll do world trade. But we're not going to spend two years being absolutely um, bogged down having these negotiations with you. Um, or we're going to, are we going to have serious negotiations with you? It? And you've got to actually come up with something quickly. I mean, what would, your, what would your preferred model be? Well, I think it's so complicated, it'd be easier to do the, the simple break one. At least challenge them on that. There's a sort of vision of, of that kind of Brexit, which then also involves, which I'm, I'm personally quite attracted to, the sort of smaller state stripping away 
you know, trying to make ourselves leaner and, and more nimble and more competitive. But presumably, that's not quite as attractive to you. No, I certainly see it as making ourselves more competitive is important, and that um, this difficult term productivity is key to to lots of things, including rising living standards. But I mean, it's very interesting how the view of the state has changed in my lifetime from one which was seen as a protective organisation to one which is back to as it was originally um, as the labour movement started to grow and the trade union movement grew as, as an enemy. I mean, that people don't now think... I mean, I don't think many people in Stoke think the state is the, is, is the uh, solution to their problems when it clearly it has a role to play. The undermining of politicians is quite serious. But then we make it easy for them, don't we, some of the things that we do to confirm that view. But I think genuinely about... If you look at um, the late um, 1890s and so on, with the beginnings of new unionism and you've already got the skilled unions and then the beginnings of the formation of the Labour Party, um, the Labour movement was anti-state. It's it saw this, and that's why Gladstone was so successful, as the body that protected the rich. And we're back to the state protecting the rich. I mean, we've not, not had one banker in in the box, let alone sent to prison for all of the terrible things that they've inflicted upon us. Um, and I think people do see that as, as is part of the great drama that's unfolding. They see the state as protecting the very rich and not on their side. And that's a mega change. But this is the weird thing, isn't it? Trump, for example, campaigns against Wall Street. I, I crunch through every word he says on Twitter. And, you know, Wall Street and bankers and Goldman Sachs were kind of right up there and he wasn't being nice about them. But he then gave, as the, he gave the Goldman Sachs man a job. Yeah, he? the instant he gets into, into office, suddenly <laughs> it's, it's all about repealing Dod- Dodd-Frank and employing Goldman Sachs. But generally it's not with him. I mean, he's actually, uh, I would have thought, trying to make a difference, however appallingly or well you think he's, he's doing so. But I mean, I thought, always thought he would win the nomination and the um, prize itself. I was saying what I thought would happen, not what I thought what wished to happen. So, I mean, do you think that could happen in Britain as well? I mean, do you think Brexit is as far as we go towards the sort of screw the world impulse? Or is there a... If, if the May government doesn't succeed... We have no one in the House of Commons with George Galloway's ability to speak. Whatever you think about his views, mm. Galloway... And wonderful, and while he, uh, um, he, when he was sp- speaking in the House of Commons, to, to be the only person that would stand up and defend Saddam Hussein, there m- might have been good reasons why he was, about what the arrangements were, but it's powerful stuff. I mean, are there moments that, that you, sort of looking back, you think that after when you've done that in the, on the floor of the of the House, I mean, that you can look back and think that yes, I, I'm. I'm proud I did that, or, I, or I'm ashamed I didn't. No, I think I'm, I'm typecast, so I, I couldn't play that sort of role. I remember quite early on with um, being pushed into uh, the Commons to keep a debate going, and, and the lovely um, Jarry member who was deputy for it saying, Speak, speak, speak! I didn't know what the debate was about. It was quite early on in my career, but um, I, as I said, being t- typecast. And Speaker Weatherall was in the chair so before I could find out what the debate was about he called me 
not knowing what the hell this was before we had the big indicators up in the House of Commons so I, I just said would somebody intervene so I could find out what this debate is about so I then somebody intervened so I could then ask a person saying, what is this debate on that I've got to speak about and I then um, resumed I had um, that weekend read one of the companion was looking I hadn't read it looking at the companion volumes for Churchill's um, Great Life or the Great Life on Churchill and there was an occasion when a group of house guests at Chartwell were going down to the summer house and Churchill was rehearsing a speech saying Mr Speaker I didn't expect to catch your eye today i.e. to speak and they was learning it off by heart. And I said to whether <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I didn't expect to get your catch your eye this evening. I've been pushed in to speak. And not anybody laughed. They just this was just straight stuff. Whereas if Neil Kinnock had said it, they'd have been rolling around. I mean Neil says that about that you know, he only has to get up and people know that it's all gonna it's gonna be a lot of Oh William Hague has said Yes, awesome. absolutely. But I can't you know, no one would take me in that role. When I was first deselected from my constituency as opposed to other places, I mean, the Sunday Times did a poll uh, in Birkenhead about um, my standing, and it was so good that Andy Grice changed the figures down because he thought it was not believable. And then when they, Blair did a poll for in Wirral for the by-election of Wirral South just before the end of the before he won in 97 um, and again that showed but I but who knows um, what one's standing is here and everywhere one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh, it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. But I think the polls are quite good, really. So how do you... That, that was something I was going to ask you about. How do you sort of view your relationship with your constituents and how do they sort of inform inform your thinking? They teach me all the time. Uh, but if anybody says to me, do I represent my constituents, I have no idea how to. I mean, I, the, the, you know, the, I, the, the thought with the, so many different views and 
shades of views that I can somehow do that. I'd never do anything else. I'd never get on top of it anyway, what their views are. I just think the role is, which I think they accept, is that I should just come in to say what I think is important to say. So, so it's not it's not as if your views on urban poverty derive from a sort of an in-depth study of the uh, no, but the, bu- the Birkenhead. But they do teach one um, so much about what's going on, what it's really like. It pulls you up sharp. So as I say, for me, it's been a most brilliant thirty-seven year old seven thirty-seven years of seminar, constant seminar. That's that's what I get from my constituency going round. I've always thought I should give up when two things happen. Whether I have the courage is another matter. Um, one is I arrive at Lime Street and I'm not excited. There's always a buzz at Lime Street arriving. And secondly, that when I'm in the constituency, I haven't learnt anything. I normally learn so much I have to forget most of it. I couldn't possibly capitalise on it. I mean, to have a cons- to have a seat, a single-member seat, where you're responsible is a great strength of our system. It provides members, if they wish to learn from it, the most marvellous tutorial basis possible. And do you think that there's a temptation, though, that MPs become sort of glorified social workers, that you're so busy attending to your constituents that you don't have the time to think about yeah. bigger issues? There is, and there's obviously a balance to be, to be gained. I remember when I was a young Labour, young socialist, asking Tomley, Frank Tomley, the member for Hammersmith North, who... You know, for awful views, I thought, how could this man possibly be an MP? And I said, how do you do your, you know, your job and your correspondence? And he said, oh, I always throw letters away, first time, um, and and I answer them um, if it's important. I said, how do you know it's important? Oh, because they write a second time and say, I have written to you, you haven't answered the letter. And I thought, this is amazing. But he did that by himself. He didn't have a secretary. So then the post bag was tiny compared with what happens now for MPs. Because email and Twitter, and you, you get, there's more and more channels to reach you. And email is a huge changer because people just expect you should reply immediately. There's the immediacy of politics rather than you might have thought about something before you gave off a reply. Mrs T used to, in those days, that she had 25 letters in any week on a topic she was briefed for Prime Minister's questions because if she'd got 25 letters the chances were somebody would raise that in the House of Commons and I think it's quite interesting what what campaigns come in via um, emails and are there I mean other issues where you sort of find yourself just sort of not so much disagreeing as just ignoring what uh, that, that the feeling in your in your inbox or Oh no, I'm all, but no, I wasn't that like to actually tell them what I, th- I think. Um, I don't think that does you any harm. I do remember once where in the first election where, where um, it was um, touch and go. I mean, uh, I, it was a northern. It was a winter of discontent. I had no idea what it was like canvassing in the north as compared with the south, or, or how good the you know the the difference it really was. And this guy came up with his, he was only, you know, typical Labour, lovely, uh, stereotyped image with a vest on. And suddenly uh, um, shouting the most obscene stuff to me on race. And I said, you must never, ever, 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 you know, 
Now, if I lose my temper, I do lose my temper. I went really excited, and you could see that I was very excited. Have you got that? Never, ever, ever. Have you got it? Mm, boom, boom, boom. And he said, what right have you to say who I should vote for? And I knew perfectly well I got his vote. So I've always told people, and it's never been very many, just the stuff there, though. I couldn't care tuppence. I just disagree with them. Presumably this is one of the sort of big issues. You, I mean, what are the, apart from Brexit, obviously, and all it entails, what are the sort of issues which you think in the way that there was immigration and poverty and, and you know, racism, what are, the, what are the sort of issues which you, which you would be campaigning on now for the next 20 years? You know, what well, one is, oh, 20 years, <laughs> steady on. Um, one is actually the re-emergence of destitution and hunger. And that is, is, is a, the idea of when one set out that that was going to be an issue, that people would actually be hungry. Um, and that, that given how, how much richer we are and still the bottom's fallen out for the bottom that's well, it's, we've got campaigns going on feeding Britain feeding Birkenhead an extraordinary sort of a response uh, to that but it, the media's not that interested in hungry people which is amazing um, occasionally they'll do something um, that's what the lessons we draw from Sir Philip Green and what he's done BHS for pensions is that is um, immensely important. They're longing for it to be seen. I could have asked, wouldn't necessarily have got the judge to make it a jury case. So then, but I'm yes, still waiting. Although, for although, although, where you find twelve honest men and true who haven't heard of Philip Green, because <laughs> that would be so, wouldn't it? But there must be some people, mustn't there? I haven't got a view about it. And we'd just go on for days picking the jury, wouldn't we? That may be true, the judge may not give it on that those grounds, but I was longing for it because we would see then who was actually being tried. Well, I just think it's just um, so grotesque what he's done. I suggested to your colleague, Chuck Ramona, that uh, the next Labour Prime Minister is more likely to look like Nigel Farage than Tony Blair, and got a very stern response. Well, I bet you did there. <laughs> but I, but I, I, still think, I still think it's a... No, a, I think, oh, no, I think you're dead right. Oh, the idea that we're going to have a, another Blair, um, that's impossible, uh, unless we're totally suicidal, um, which is... Po- no, no, though it's going to be um, a, a Jess Phillips figure, isn't it? It's not going to be a charmer like Blair if we're going to survive. Somebody who's straight talking, who just mixes it and goes in there. Um, You're absolutely right on that. I suppose the the survival of the Labour Party is a a weird thing to find yourself sort of worrying about and focusing on after after so many years within it. And partly it's that the, um, you know, even if you just look at um, the... Um, Republican Party before Reagan people thought it would never get elected again got it elected everybody this time said it's all hopeless it's sewn up for Hillary um, and I don't know whether he is a Republican or not but somebody carries that label actually gets elected so it's quite strange what happens um, but it, ju- it just is that if you look at Jeremy's views he is nothing but consistent and honest about them and they are views which the core the, the, that, that very important white working class vote simply do not share and he's not prepared to move and they're not prepared to move that's the danger we have in somehow if we only can stay in this long enough the wheel would come round and we'll get washed into Downing Street that's not an option at the moment 
I suppose this is a wider question about politics. Do you think it's more important to sort of get the leader right or get the ideas right? I mean, is it is it about having the having the sort of the, the figure who the, the the figure at the top, or is it about the the people at the bottom? Oh, I think it's the lead. I'm I'm an old elitist in this sense, but I think the the form of elitism has fundamentally changed. Hence, who what sort of person needs to be the next Labour leader if we're going to win? And it's not going to be a Blairite or a Blair-type creature. Um, but but so from those early days when one saw the role that Macmillan made by leadership convinced me. And then Gates, I mean, that was the real person that attracted me into the Labour Party. Those wonderful speeches when he, on the, the Tories introduced the first immigration bill and he f- fought it, was going to run principle against it particularly as it affected the Commonwealth. And all the senior people said, for goodness sake, Hugh, do not touch this issue. You know, oh, dangerous and all that. And before the second reading, the polls show he's got a majority against the bill. So leadership, I think, is immensely important. The public are up for leadership. Uh, they're not up for um, those who dissemble. Certainly not now. I think you've got to do two things. One is we need Jeremy, a figure like Jeremy, with his um, character and sincerity and so on, but with the right views <laughs> to do this. And then secondly, that the, the life that he, he or she leads has got to be one that also can win middle-class votes. That's our coalition. We, we, don't, we cannot win without that coalition. Um, redemption is not just in the old working class vote it's just that that's what we brought into existence to protect and to lose that and to think there's enough votes in the North London elite is folly beyond belief but we do need middle class votes as well especially because Scotland is now lost probably forever it's about time we had a woman leader um but you know the um, the guy from Norwich, What's Clive Lewis. Clive Lewis. Sorry, I should be quick on that. Um, he's got that. He's authentic. Um, I mean, I would favour a woman. I mean, it just it just seems to me to be appalling to have had two women prime ministers in the Tory party. I mean, we haven't really. I mean, I know temporarily and all sorts of things, but we haven't actually had a woman leader in the Labour Party and t- taking us into government but but needs must maybe you know it will be Clive and his um, attractiveness I mean it's a tough cookie I mean from no, coming in here and uh, being on the front bench straight away and taking those responsibilities it's been a, uh, it's a, you know, the furnace has tested him and who do you rate on the Tory side from the Prime Minister down and the great thing about the Tory party is that, I mean, they do have the best primates they could have. <laughs> so I, mean, I can't really think about who is coming up. Because normally primates are very bad about bringing on the next generation. I mean, I'm not the cabinet. There are always people in the cabinet who might want to get your job. But I mean, it's the, it's the generation earlier than that that one ought to be looking at. Um, and, and the Prime Minister is making sure that there's plenty of time for those people to shine. Attlee used to come in and sit for hours listening to the debate because he never believed what the whip said about members. So he would get a feel of who was hopeless and who was promising. 
Um, and he started out, of course, thinking that an Ireland Bethel would be his successor and then was disappointed by an Ireland's behaviour over a number of matters. Did you ever, in, in your early years, think that you that would be your career path? That you no, would... I never thought that. I promise you, I never thought that. I mean, I'd like to have a period in government <laughs> um, to see when but I you, you had, could you had, be... But you had a period in government. I know, I know, but it... Um, but my naivety was that I somehow thought it was a genuine offer and not um, the uh, presentation officer of, offer for, the labor, for a Labour victory. Blair once said to me, you reach people that even I can't reach. And I ought to have registered that and said, oh, that's really why they want me on board. That this is not going to be serious at all. Um, but I made a mistake about him. I thought he was... Um, would would stand up to Gordon and we had sessions in the cabinet on the welfare cabinet committee where I, the rest of the cabinet would be silent and I'd be fighting him Gordon and yet he didn't think it was important to keep me there for his own good never mind about the programme um, uh, so it was, it was an extraordinary puzzle for me that Blair could get the crown had all those abilities to get the crown and yet I think so unsuited to be Prime Minister. There was not... I mean, all the dirty work he asked other people to do. Contrast that with Mr Ratley, he just did his own dirty work to sack people, just so you're not up to it. And after you go... I mean, the whole thing was different. The idea that you'd get colleagues to spin and talk about your colleagues. I mean, appalling state of affairs. I mean, this, the story I always like is the... Well, 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 like is the wrong word. Um, at the start of his second term, he calls in the sort of reforming ministers, you know, the Byers, Byers, Milburn, you know, he said, like, you guys are in charge of health, education, transport. We're going to, this is going to be the term we really get the changes. And within three years, I think it is, Gordon Brown has got rid of all of them, or they've got rid of themselves. It worked, but you see, while we, the surprise to lots of people was that Gordon didn't have any ideas when the push came to shelf, Tony didn't really. I mean, he was endlessly trying to grab something which, you, th- you know, could be a, a, good, a good story in the mail or in the Sunday Times. I don't think he ever had a clear... My conversations with him before, never, I, I, I never thought this was, man's got um, a vision programme, what he actually wants to... Or nor did the party give him one to actually implement. And do you think the same is true of Cameron and May? I think um, certainly with Cameron that's true. I mean, but being a Tory and just wanting to govern isn't a pro- an improper thing to do. It's not a proper thing for the La- it is an Im- improper thing for the Labour Party to want to do. I mean, and Mrs May, who I I would doubt whether she had a programme before, is having one forced on us. So. And the 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 question, the sort of ultimate question I wanted to ask you in a the sort of classic thing that a writer always gets asked is, you know, where do you get your ideas? What is it? You know, what, why, why do you think the things you think about public policy, about the best ways to make people better off? I can't tell you. I'm also, I was just, it's quite interesting how you know, they occur. Oh, they seem so obvious to me. Um, sometimes, um, I'm genuinely um, ones that come up, and I, I then forget the actual very basis of them, the actual event which made me think about those. I mean, I do know, I mean, one thing which maybe is more important, 
partly because in my view Patrick who had um, Andrew's job before was always conscious I was a sort of fascist figure and all my, my image needed <laughs> remodelling and this, this report wonderful report from Ian Duncan Smith's group came up it was CSJ and it was on slavery and I Patrick said it's in the diary and I said Patrick I know nothing I'm not interested at all and he said you're going so I went to go I went and I sat there and this is disputed by uh, the editor of the Spectator he spoke for too long and for once in his life was boring um, and then there were other speakers and I thought what can I say in 30 seconds and I said in 30 seconds one is that we must call uh, trafficking by its real name slavery and we must have a bill and I spent the um, summer with Tim, who worked in the office then, of trying to get Fiona Hill to persuade the Home Secretary that was, you know, it was a really important issue, but an important issue for, for her image as well. And we got the bill. And normally lots of ideas take 30 years to get across. That was sort of three months of lobbying. Um, but that resulted in me being pushed into something I didn't want to do. <laughs> and then I thought, oh God, we need a, we need a, um, a, an act, so let's go for it. So that's how it occurred then. But it wasn't a noble thing. I was, there was somebody trying to quite nicely protect my, you know, remodel the image a bit by giving me a sort of softer contours to it. But it resulted in a great piece of legislation. And the Prime Minister says it's the, the most important thing that she's she's most proud of which is terrific to have a Prime Minister and you came up with it in 30 seconds yeah because I was bored and my bones (laughs) and Fraser Nelson had talked too long (laughs) and my bones were aching and I thought what about this 300 people because CSJ launching things they may just made an error this time but they got the the whole of the library the National Liberal Club um, full of people who wanted to get out this has gone on far too long and then I learnt so much more about how it the genesis of it, and that Wilberforce had spent, what, 30, God knows, years trying to get an act through. And it was a group of young evangelicals, like Wilberforce was when he began, that approached Philippa Stroud at the centre to say, how can you call yourself Centre for Social Justice? There's slavery in this country. And her reaction was, well, no, we'll just stay on chaps. All these things cost money to do inquiries. So they said they'd pay for the inquiry, and they'd pay for the inquiry. And when we then published and were campaigning for it, and then doing this scoping exercise for the bill before we had the joint committee of both houses, they paid for it. So it's, a, it's again, it was a, an intriguing story of the, uh, the impact of... of um, Young, uh, the inv- evangelicals again, where the church shrinks, and yet there's these individuals that have ideas and commitments out of all proportion, just the same as in Birkenhead. Uh, that not all, but, but the vast majority of people who get to and feed your hungry kids in the holidays, and are doing all sorts of other things to make sure that that waste isn't is actually. Um, some a tiny amount is recycled to people who are hungry. Our churches, and it's a huge paradox that the organisation that is on the slides, whatever the denomination, is really the only organisation that produces people who want to do things. 
Um, I mean, when I was about, I mean, the two things that I've witnessed is the loss of um, trade union influence, the loss of the church's influence. If you're interested in society, well, what's these two great organisations of making society, and they've not been replaced by anything. And one's witnessed and documented that decline. But in that decline, the one body that can really do something still get people out are the churches. Not the unions? No. And not the Labour parties. That is fair enough, isn't it, Andrew? We've written to lots of our new members. I think four wanted to do various activities. The Labour Party is a moral crusade or it is nothing. And I guess it's choosing the nothing. Well, there, quite a lot of them have, have been there because they want to support Jeremy and protect Jeremy, but they don't want to build this social movement which he talks about into an effective political force. I mean, I mean, if they really think trying to get rid of me is a great political achievement, there, it's just utter folly, isn't it? I mean, we've got to actually convince the electorate, but it's very narrowly defined what they see as politics. Whereas I would have thought building a coalition in the town. Or in towns where there aren't Labour members, um, but, a, but the Labour Party is associated with ensuring that kids go to school who are not hungry, and making sure when because we don't have free school dinners during the holidays that they are actually fed during the holidays and have fun like richer kids would appeal um, and build up politics that way. That's after all how the Labour Party hundred years ago would have operated. It wouldn't have thought passing resolutions are important to do, but they're not. I mean, just. What's the situation in your constituency then? I, I, well, who knows, but um, they did not take us over this time. Whether we're as lucky as next time, I don't know we're, um, about how we organise, but I mean, it's so destructive. I think we're going to spend time on trying to survive when we ought to be campaigning on issues. I mean, it's deeply n- negative. I mean, Angela Eagle's constituency, as you know, has been overrun by them. And if they put a fraction of, as you say, if they put a fraction of the effort into improving society as opposed to talking about improving society. And I mean, I struck last time when they were getting rid of me and not getting rid of me, getting rid of me and not getting rid of me. I mean, the, 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 the hatred behind so much of it, which is, is so appalling. Um, how can good come out when the, I mean, it's that sort of bitterness and so on. It's not done because you know, we think we've got a better argument and all the rest of it. It's just this trot way of organising, which is deeply um, destructive, I think, both for the people who do it and for the Labour Party more generally, especially if you're thinking longer term. We're actually rewriting the poverty story. It does, the normal framework doesn't hang up anymore. Industry in the post-war period gave people um, family wages, so you could actually... Men were skilled... They were hunters and gatherers. They brought a wage packet home. They had a proper role. And marriage gave them um, the, the other side, the women, female side, was not the security of having a family and the role that they most treasure. But in return, they kindly civilised the men <laughs> as part of the deal for the rest of us. And now we've got a whole group of males who cannot fulfil their historic role. And a lot of um, women who wouldn't be particularly interested in that role, and we've fallen out of love as a society with nurturing children. And while some are noble beyond belief, it's wonderful. How can you lie in bed 
as we have in every constituency of the country, expecting little kids to get up while you lie there, get on, get themselves washed, dressed to school, no breakfast. I mean, it's just unimaginable what's going on. And the amazing thing is they get to school, which is, for lots of them, it's really the only safe place which they know about, but they don't spend that much time there. And, I mean, part of Feeding Birkenhead is about, we know parents, we should have a society which allows parents the money to do it, and other parents to be, you know, in a sense, shamed into doing it, who have got the money and can't be bothered. Um, but the idea that you've got a huge armies of children everywhere, in every constituency, hungry, and of, of teachers laying on breakfast clubs and supper clubs as they know that they will go home um, to cold, empty house. Um, I was struck by one little fellow who had been adopted, and I said to him, what was the difference um, for life for you being ad um, adopted? And he said it was, um, um, go home and it's warm and there's food in the cupboards. Quite chilling, isn't it? Thank you for listening to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor, and I hope I'll see you again next week. If you like this, please subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.